0: Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with the Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 149. So glad you could join me. We have an amazing show lined up for you today. Um, Katie Vickham is here. Uh, we're going to talk about her new, uh, her most recent book, Mal's Open to Her Name. Everybody knows Katie as uh, one of the winners of the Reader's Choice Awards for the Rattle Poetry Prize. Really looking forward to meeting her with her in just a little bit. Before I begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed. Anything you can do to help poetry spread around the Internet is much appreciated and all that we ask of you. So please do that. Help spread this stuff because it's good content here at the uh, Rattlecast, and we hope you can help other people enjoy it too. Now, uh, we're going to start with our Poet Respond Poets for uh, Sunday and um, Sunday and Tuesday. And Caitlin, Caitlin Spees is here, um, and she had this wonderful poem from the women's restroom, and of course, about the topic that most people were writing about this week. We had, I don't know, 250 submissions or something like that. Most of them were about the, uh, the Roe v. Wade decision, the Supreme Court, the United States overturning that ruling. Um, but here she is to talk about it in this great poem, Caitlin Spees. Hey, Caitlin, how are you doing?
1: Hey, pretty good. How are you?
0: I'm good. So, um, so this poem. I, what I just loved about this poem is the way that it just creates such a moment. Like, it, you feel like you're in that restroom. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the the poem came to be and 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 what inspired you to write it? Just to to get going.
1: I mean, it's so like sort of like watching that watching that that like flyer in the after the election. Just like that, no one was interested in. Just like suddenly, everyone became interested. Like that that happened and I sort of noticed it and sort of kept it in the back of my head. And then I think I started, like, I think I started trying to trying to write it as a poem, um, probably when, oh, like the, whichever, like the, the I, um, I think it was like when Amy Comey, Comey Barrett was yeah. um, formed. Um, so I started then and like, I'd work on it a little bit and then I'd sort of lose momentum and then i'd be like okay that was that was a fun draft to work on and then you know you know bubble back to um sort of everyone's consciousness and then i'd work on it some more and then it just yeah it was super iterative and yeah unfortunately it just kept becoming relevant and here we are (laughs) sorry
0: Mm -hmm. no yeah for sure i mean it's just such a i think it's probably the biggest i mean we lived through so many huge moments in the last just few years. Um, you know, we had another pandemic again, of course, which you'd think is the biggest thing to go on in our lives or adult lives for people our age, you know. But then, uh, but then this is the biggest political thing that's happened in so long. I mean, gonna—it's completely changes the political landscape and everything that, that we're facing. Um, it just has shifted. It's a monumental shift. and um, And I don't know. I mean, enough can't be said about how significant it is. Um, Do you want to go ahead and read the poem from The women's Restroom?
2: Sure.
1: Yeah. Sorry. There's like six versions of it. Let me see if I've got the... Yeah, I think this is the right one. Okay, Okay. here we go. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, From The women's Restroom. The restroom in my workplace is like women's rooms everywhere. The floor is thumbprint-sized tiles in three distinct shades of gray arranged in no discernible pattern just above the sinks, of course, there's one of those ubiquitous and sanctimonious stickers shaped like a bare blue foot, reminding me that water is life, and thanking me for using less, which invites, in my view, a discussion about what using less life might possibly mean. This restroom boasts two paper towel dispensers. One modern bread box sized gray plastic wails over waste while it grants, each waving supplicant, a short sheet, The other, old-school metal, offers its threefold papers freely, then gapes, emptily, at a long-defunct tampon dispenser, still asking forlornly for quarters. Flyers taped just above eye-level inside each stall's gappy half-door entertain their quite captive audience, with primary colored flowcharts and checklists about the Clary Act, and guidelines for mandatory reporting. I read them idly each month on the days when I bivouacked the bathroom repeatedly to shiver and yawn and pass blood clots which bloom in the toilet water. They're strange little rooms, right? Where we choose courteously not to hear our colleagues' business. The flyers change with the times. In 2016, for example, the signage sought volunteers for a clinical trial to see whether IUD insertion could be made less painful. The response was understandably less than enthusiastic because given a choice, who would want to be on the control arm of that study? For months, that hopeful flyer's sad, intact, phone-numbered fringe fluttered in the slam of stall doors until the election, after which those little slips of paper vanished like hotcakes. I think I laughed, a single dull bark, when I saw how shorn the flyer had become. And here, I think today, Shivering, yawning, cramping is the fruition about to bloom in blood.
3: Yeah,
0: it's it's that ending that does. I mean, that you know, the whole ending, the whole poem paints such a powerful scene and then just slams you with that ending, which is just so true. And, and you know, I mean, that has, you know, we all kind of wondered about that back in 2016. And then and then here it is, you know, come, you know, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that poem and, and joining us today, Caitlin. It's always a pleasure to see you.
1: Sure, thank
0: you so much. Yeah. Hey, that was Caitlin Spees with uh with Sunday's poem uh from the women's re- restroom. And here next is um, um Bailey uh Bailey Cardinal with uh America I Want, which is gonna be Tuesday's poem. So um hey Bailey, how you doing? Oops sorry, I muted you. <laughs> there Are we you- go. I-
4: Okay, I'm good. How are you? I'm good.
0: Yeah, it's great to see you, and congratulations on the new name. So, this is Bailey Frazier, who you know, uh, fans of Poetry Respond will know for a long, You know, will recognize because you've published, I think, eight or eight or so poems in Poetry Respond. Congratulations on the new name, though, Bailey Cardinal.
5: Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, so, so tell us about this poem. No one's read it yet because it's tomorrow's poem that's going to be featured on uh, rattle.com, But, but introduce it before we read it. Like, what what inspired the poem, and, and how did it come to be?
4: Uh, so. I mean, obviously like when I heard about the decision to up in like Roe versus Wade, I just, all I kept thinking about was this collective loss of voice. And for me that like felt very personal because one of the reasons I have not been writing is because I actually lost my voice about three years ago. Like my singing voice and I'm a singer too and I haven't been able to sing. And for me, like music and poetry are so intertwined like for me personally and able Like, so I just, I just felt like this personal connection to like the voice loss and that I wanted to convey like that, like metaphorically with this collective loss of voice that was going on. And it's strange watching all of this from where I am because I'm American. I grew up there, but now I live in Canada where things are. Obviously very different from how they are, but it's, it's, it's strange watching it from a distance. So it's just, I don't know, the whole thing just poured out at once.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, it's the the best poems work like that very often. It's so fascinating, though, that you you lost your singing voice and then that somehow translated to poetry. Um, I don't, is there anything more you can say about that? Because that's such an interesting connection That, that poetry and, 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 and singing would be so entwined for you Because um, I yeah. was wondering you, know, you, you were such a star of Poet Respond And then we haven't heard from you in a while So uh, we did have one poem that you came and read um, On the open mic recently But uh, this is the first second poem in a while So it's really cool to hear you back But, but what, what can you say about that? Like, what is it about that connection? that, uh, yeah. that have, have, What they have in common?
4: I, I think it's just like the cadence of language the rhythm of language like I've been a musician my whole life I've also like wanted to be a writer since I was like knew how to write a sentence basically so and they've always just both dominated my life and anytime I would write I would always listen to music um, to help kind of fuel like every stanza or every line it would just like the I don't know the magic of listening would help me create and then Once I lost my voice, music made me sad. And so every time I would sit down to write, I just couldn't. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, Well, we're so glad that that you got that back. Um, Do you want to read this poem, America I Want?
4: Yes, I will do my best. Okay. (laughs) America, I want to tell you a secret as the sun buries itself in our backs, us sitting like driftwood at the horizon of a lake we don't know the name of. I want to say it as boats pass, worn by the season, muttering into the wind, thumping like hearts over choppy water. I'd name mine for you, my boat, Ephemera. I painted your favorite shade of blue. When docked, I'd sing for you, like I used to, with my sisters when they felt like sisters. I sang when I was tired. I sang as my skin, sun-beaten, peeled away. I want to say. It was for the best that I stopped. That silence is a song of its own blown open and rotting. I want to say I spend days with my sisters that we still lay across an infinity of lawn, dawn hanging like a pink wire over the morning, which to us meant the rest of our lives. I want alive to mean what it did before. I want to whisper in your ear like a door. I want to open. I want to sing more than anything into something endless like sky or blue. I want to stop telling you about the rape. It's been four years. I want years to mean eternities, wars to mean past. I want to stop seeing this tide swallowed shore as my body, as the time of year, the weather we're in, but it's hard. I used to love salt on my skin windows rolled down the radio of you the surf of you the forever hull of you i want to tell you i want to begin that's it the song of a used engine awake but unable to forgive
0: yeah just a powerful poem um the emotion is just so you know pours out of the page there and an emotion that so many people are feeling right now um thanks bailey it's, it's a pleasure to have you back on poetry spot and uh, share another poem everybody can look forward to reading that tomorrow thank you yeah thanks Yes, it was Bailey Frazier with America I Want, tomorrow's poem. Um, and we're going to take a quick break now and uh, go to our main guest, Katie Bickham. So sit right there and I will be right back. We're back Thanks so much for your patience As I mentioned today's guest Is Katie Bickham Katie's second book of poetry Is right here Mouths open to her name It's available from LSU Press It was selected by Former Louisiana Poet Laureate Ava Leval Heyman As part of the um, Barataria poetry series Her debut collection The Belmar Is from uh, Pleiades 2015, won the Lena Miles Weaver Todd Prize. Katie's the recipient of the New Millennium Poetry Prize, the Lena Miles Weaver Todd Prize, the Missouri Review- Review's Editor's Prize, and Rattles Reader's Choice Award, of course, for the Blades. Um, Katie teaches creative writing at um, Bosier Parish Community College in Bosier City, Louisiana, and I'm wondering how many words I mispronounced in that bio, but uh, but maybe Katie can tell us. Thanks so much for joining us, Katie.
6: Oh, Tim. It wasn't too bad. Um, uh, I
0: should have like thought of that ahead of time. I realized that there are a lot of um probably There's Louisiana. a lot of
6: weird stuff in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> but anyway. It's Louisiana,
6: so it's French, so it's bouger.
0: Yeah, I figured. That's what I was thinking. But yeah. um but that's that's actually closer than I thought. So Yeah, you, you did
5: try. You did try. <laughs> but
0: anyway, it's so great to see you. I'm so glad you could be a guest. Um I've always been such a fan of your work. Um oh, do you want maybe. to start us out with a poem?
6: Yeah, absolutely. Um So this first poem, I was just telling Tim, um, is a poem that I always like to either begin or end poetry readings with. Um, As is the case, I feel like for most poets, most of our work is like dealing with some pretty heavy um, notions and things we're grappling with. And it's really rare to have a poem that comes from a place of just utter joy and jubilation. So um, I always try to make sure I put this in there to even the scales. This is called The Good News. Today, 350,000 babies will be born. Yesterday, they were all on their way, almost with us, not here yet, but today they will arrive. All of them, 350,000 of them in a single sleek rotation of the earth, alone and in pairs, screaming and silent, head first and feet first, are coming, another dozen every second, no matter how many forests we bulldoze or bullets we fire. They arrive and arrive like a laugh we can't stifle even at funerals or faculty meetings, a cup fuller each time we come for a drink. No matter how many barrels of oil we pump from the desert or dump in the ocean, How many units of blood we transfuse into soldiers, they arrive and arrive. The good news we can't wait to tell our buddies. The dog's tail thumping the carpet at five o'clock, fish and loaves multiplying in the hands of Christ, unstoppable even after we push back from the table, full to bursting. And these are just the humans. What glut of joy to count as well the millions of featherless birds bucking shells, minnows clumsy in cold currents, downy puppies with flat noses, or the lowly billion tomatoes taking root, acorns gaining purchase, moss doubling on hundred-year-old trees, and the just-as-likely infants on triple-distant moons orbiting planets we haven't named. But our home today, before you fall asleep, will be 350,000 babies richer, 700,000 lungs louder, fanned by billions of brand new eyelashes. And if you're low, if you've watched too much news or fallen out of love or lost your keys or your faith, or if all of the sunsets begin to look alike, just picture them all. 350,000 babies together at once, a city's worth of them in a row or a circle or wrapped in an acres wide blanket and uh, an army of innocents yawning their first breaths over the globe and the promise that it will all happen again, just like this, just as imperfectly, no matter what, tomorrow. Tomorrow.
0: Yeah, just a beautiful poem, and and, uh, uh, both joyous and and just wonderful in the way. It gave me goosebumps when I read it the first time. Um, Just to to have something positive, um, like you say, is pretty rare in poetry. Um, The other thing, though, that was just amazing to me, and this is something that I've been thinking about just this week, and then this poem comes at the beginning of this collection, which is about, um, you know, it's a book about, you know, patriarchy and women's, you know, what women have to go through. Um, and it's because of this, which is the thing that I've been sort of thinking about. It's that miracle, you know, we're all driven toward, um, you know, to carry on our genes. Like that is what the the primary thing of our drive is. And I was reading an article... Um, Uh, Some new study recently came out, and um, you know, there's we all have about twice as many mothers as fathers um, because because women are twice as likely to reproduce than men. And for 200,000 years, um, this has sort of been like the right balance because that way men have to compete, and then you get better genes, and that's (laughs) kind of how it works. But what this study found it was a genetic analysis. They found that right at the dawn of agriculture, um, that ratio jumps to 17 to one. Um, for about a thousand years, and um, so there are seventeen times as many mothers as fathers back then, which means that that at that time, like once we got to settle down and like the hierarchy became like substance based and maybe transferable across generations, like polygamy was like going nuts. (laughs) And so, and so, if you think about it, like religion was a way to like like so the so women had the control of that like perpetuating the species. And then yeah. religion came about um, to sort of restabilize the society to control sure. women um, in order to. And that's where the patriarchy all stems from. And so to, to have this like the consequences of that continuous miracle that's been going on for 500 million years of, of yeah. generations continuing. And then what it turns into culturally throughout the rest of the book. I don't know if everybody's following my random ramblings, but but it was just so fascinating to see this poem set off. It's so different from the rest of the poems in the book. And it seems, and it's just, it's just a cool way. It's like, I don't know. What were you thinking when you put that poem at the beginning of the book? That's my question. Were you thinking along these lines at all?
6: Yeah. So um, the book is all poems about in some way or another the maternal cycle. So menstruation, pregnancy, abortion, conception, birth, lying in, nursing, all that infertility. Um, And as you said, most of our written history has uh, birth being sort of in a man's world. Um, and because of that, a lot of birth stories, a lot of pregnancy stories, abortion stories, and so on are, um, not joyful and not jubilant. And, um, that thing that should be sacred and that should be joyful, uh, in a lot of ways has been stolen from us. And so, um, As I was thinking about the order of the poems in the book, because so many of them are really sad um, and and trying to tell difficult, true stories. I wanted to um, bookend the book, if you will, uh, with the two happiest poems I could think of in a a way that says, like, you didn't win. Um, we, We still have this joy and we still take this joy back. Mm-hmm. Um, like the use of, of female midwives is finally coming back over the male obstetrician and things like that. So like we're, we're taking back the, the land um, and the joy that, that should be ours, mm-hmm. that should have always been ours.
0: Yeah. And, and I mean, that's what the Supreme court decision is all about is like wrestling yeah. control of that, that miracle of that. Yeah. Someone came 000. up to me at,
6: I, I read yeah. this poem once and this lady came up to me and she said, Oh, that was such a great poem to protest abortion. And I was like, whoa, I don't think you were listening. Um, but because you know, we, when we choose to have children and they are pregnancies that we want and we choose, it is wonderful, but you get to want and choose it first, of course. Mm-hmm. So um, I thought that was a very interesting misreading of it. Um, but yeah, I just want to be clear. We're all about the pregnancies that we want mm-hmm. and yeah. only those.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and, and so much research obviously went into this book. I mean, there's so many different stories. I've never heard of any of these characters or I don't know what. Um, so so one of the things I was wondering was how you how the book came to be. Because yeah. as we'll see, maybe we'll, you know, we'll read a poem in a little bit that maybe is one yeah. of those poems about historical characters. Mm-hmm. But um, but and, and then I think you sent a poem um, not in the book for later about how you like to read history. Um, yeah. but, but did you when you confront a book like this, were you reading specifically to find stories for poems or is this just topics yeah. that you're interested in? And then you happen to jot down notes and then they become poems like which direction yeah. does it flow?
6: So my first book that I wrote is called the Belmar and it was, uh, one of it, I guess people now call them like project books. And so, uh, every poem in the book takes place in a semi-fictional South Louisiana plantation. And every poem in the book takes place in a different room of the house in a different year, starting from about 1790 and ending in present day. And so I had to do a lot of research for that book and, um, and, none of the poems were about me, none of them, um, I don't appear in the book at all, it's all like a close third person, and so I got really comfortable doing that, um, and as I, you know, got ready to write a second collection, um, I had been pregnant and had my son, and uh, I knew that I finally wanted to be in my book a little bit, like I was gonna have some poems about my own birth experience, but I was also looking Toward, um, that continued like researching the stories of other, of other women. And so, yeah, what I did was it was, it wasn't so much like I was looking for specific, um, people or years. It was more like I would start with, um, the history of nursing or, Traditions related to abortion care or so I would just pick an element of the maternal cycle and then see how far back I could find information about it. And inevitably, somewhere on that journey, um, I would find a story that that mattered. And then when I couldn't find a story, I could find enough information to make composite stories. Hmm. So some of them are composites, but a lot of the stories, um, like a couple of I'm going to share tonight are like lifted from diaries and newspapers like, for real, for real.
0: Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, do, you, do you want to read one of those poems? Um, I don't know which yeah. one you next in the list, if that's one of them. Let's,
6: yeah, we can skip to so one of the more, like, researchy ones. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I had this poem. Um, <clears throat> it's about the uh, Magdalene laundries in Ireland. Um, and th- those were places where uh, unwed mothers were sent, or sometimes just women that were seen to be flirtatious or too beautiful um, in the 1800s, um, and they would be more or less imprisoned there. They were forced labor camps, um, terrible hygienic conditions, and the women were often abused and so on. And when, then when they had their babies, the babies were uh, farmed out to married Christian couples and given different names, and they were mm-hmm. untraceable. I think they made a, several movies about it that have gotten really popular. Um, but then in 1993, one of the um, Magdalene Laundries, I guess, fossils sort of were dug up while somebody was making a parking lot. Oh, wow. And so um, I managed to kind of trace back and find some names and put, put this story together. So this is called Dublin, Ireland, 1893-1993. 1893, Catherine Grehan, who had only ever been called 27 for years she could not count, woke to bells in darkness. When she was a girl, men looked at her longer than others. And so her father hid his two beautiful fourth daughter in the laundry. She had never seen a mirror inside the walls, but doubted that her beauty endured. She dressed in a line of others and silently ate food left from yesterday. She counted six mouthfuls, one for each hour until she'd eat again. The others counted two, counted and measured to stay alive, months measured by blood on the rags, their babies, 10 fingers, two eyes, Dozens of dusty eyebrows, thousands of miles away, in strangers' cradles being called the wrong names. Catherine Grehan was famous, as much as fame could be measured in the bitter silence, for trying to escape. Last April, when it thawed, she'd scaled the wall, but hadn't counted on the glass along the top. This morning, she sank her scarred hands for some thousandth time into the morning's wash, sheets and draperies, stained and soaked and heavier than many men could lift. By ten o'clock, the water had gone milky, like the priest's skin. She'd memorized him when he visited her cell, shaved her head, made her sorry for her pitiful attempt to flee. His child kicked her lowest rib as she heaved her load into the rinsing bin. Catherine Grehan, baptized daily by ice and reborn into hell, knew what did and did not come clean. 1993. After the nuns of Our Lady of Charity sold their land to settle bad stock bets, a foreman found the bones. When the excavators arrived and began their work, some of the men still believed in God. They lifted 155 women and their babies from the ground. Their limbs were crooked, shattered, plaster casted, one they found buried separate from her head. Work stopped for the day when the youngest man who still lived with his mother found the bones of a woman the bones of her baby cradled inside her broken ribs.
0: And that was Dublin, Ireland, 1893, 1993. Um, again, this we're reading poems from mouths open to her name, uh, Katie Bickham's uh, most recent book. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask about this, it, it seems kind of a weird question to ask because if you were writing fiction or nonfiction people wouldn't wonder about this, but poets don't do it very often and have a kind of hesitancy to, which is writing in other people's voices and imagining their thoughts and making characters within poems, which is something that you do. Um, How do you overcome that sense of like, I don't really know what they were thinking. Like, who am I? I hear a lot of poets say like, who am I to like imagine how it would be like to be a person there. And then, um, but then if it was fiction or or nonfiction, we would just roll with it and be fine. But for some reason, you know, we're character shy in poetry. So how do you, how do you get, get past that issue?
6: Uh, Well, for one thing, I, I do think of it like nonfiction work, um, especially for um, women who were unable to leave their own histories um, that poem, um, in particular, um, I made up that name to be respectful because they did have, um, a lot of the women didn't have names at all, um, mm-hmm. that were recorded. And I didn't want to use one of the women who actually had a name, um, because they can't match the bones to the names. So again, like I was trying to be respectful in as much as I didn't want to like falsely use some real person's name with the wrong story, um, But yeah, so like, I try to consider, um, whether that person, um, was, was intentionally silenced in some way. Mm -hmm. And like, if maybe telling their story is like leveling a scale, um, and then sometimes like they do the favor of telling their stories on their own. So like, um, a lot of, a lot of the stuff in the book is like women who left diaries and things, Mm um, and so I don't feel good if they, if they were comfortable putting it like in a newspaper, um, then, I, then I feel okay about that. And none of the poems are in the first person. So they're technically not persona poems. They're close third their poems. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in cases where I didn't want to tell, like I felt like I just couldn't tell somebody's story, I would just use composite stories that are recorded in different places and not mm-hmm. use a name at all.
0: Yeah, there's something great about the freedom that poetry has. You know, if it was a you know nonfiction book about that, you wouldn't be able to do that. But the creative, yeah. the creativeness that we get to, you know, use through poetry really helps in that regard. I guess.
6: Yeah, yeah. A lot of people have asked, like, like, wouldn't isn't all your stuff that are suited to writing like a novel or writing something you know in prose and I'll say, will you know, I say I can't be weird enough in prose and i don't need 300 pages i just need 40 lines like let me do my thing
0: yeah i mean that's something i wanted to ask about too is it, it does lend itself to that i'm so grateful that there are books that 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 do other things besides for just you know tell your own story which is great but but to dive into fiction or i mean into non-fiction and tell you know research stories that you would get because you get so much more right? we interviewed um um janice and harrington for the for the um Um, spring issue. And she has that book about uh, Horace Pippin, the painter. And I just, it's just so amazing to read through someone's life in that intense way. Like you get so much of like emotion and detail in such a small, like, like, I mean, I read this book in 45 minutes or something, you know? And it's it so digestible, it's so memorable, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful way. And I just wish more people would write, you know, about yeah. divert, you know, all sorts of topics in poetry. It'd just be wonderful. Well, yeah. So I
6: mean, like I was, I was raised on, and I say raised like when I got to college and started thinking about poetry, like the first books of poems that weren't anthologies, like, you know, an actual volume of someone's work that I was given was uh, Rita Dove's complete works, which is like Thomas and Beulah and mother love. And both of those are collections about, Uh, Thomas and Beulah is the story of her grandparents meeting. And then Mother Love is a retelling of Persephone and Demeter and Hades. Um, And so I've always loved project books that Mm -hmm. are not necessarily about the writer. And I also realized when I got to my MFA program in my graduate school, I was looking around at all my classmates and so many of them had, I mean, some of them had lived through wars. Many of them were queer people of color who had struggled against like some major battles just to exist. Um, all kinds of different um, issues. One woman was dealing with living after a stroke and she wrote quite a lot about that. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself about myself, like, what, like, why am I, maybe I don't even deserve to write. Like I've had a pretty happy life. Nothing really terrible has ever happened to me. Um, But I also love telling stories and I love to write. And so I just figured out, well, you don't have to be the subject of everything that you write. Um, and so, like I said, yeah, I wrote a whole book and a half and my, most of all my only early work is not about myself. And it's only really, really recently that I've written anything about myself at all, mm-hmm. which is to say that not only do your poems not all have to be about yourself, but if you don't have an exciting life, it's fine. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, it's a great big world with lots of interesting topics out there to write about. Yeah. That's, that's for sure um let's hear another poem Uh, what do you want to read next? yeah
6: for sure um so i'll switch back to a um sort of a non-research poem so um this poem is called shorn and it brings in different elements um related to women's hair it's in numbered sections
0: Um, Shorn. Which page is it on? I'm not seeing it. I'm sorry.
6: It's 23.
0: Okay. Oh, there it is. Yeah. I forgot to write down the page numbers. (laughs)
6: Good. Shorn. One. The Pentecostal woman next door confides. The Lord forbids a blade touch her hair. It rats and scrapes her knees, frayed, unbeautiful. She weeps in the mornings, rakes and breaks comb teeth through it. Her neck is off. She whispers, the nice gay man downtown says he'll take me out back, douse it in perm solution, and clap it off between two boards. The Lord, she knows, is merciful. Two, not even God can bear our nakedness, and in his kindness, curtained us with hair. Mine is beautiful. I have seen men's fingers, possessed, clicking and itching to reach for it to catch it in a breeze. It is long, golden, and as God wills it, when I am unclothed, it covers almost everything that makes me woman. With it, imagine all the Savior's feet I could anoint with precious oil on my knees, repentant, reborn, or put in my place, towered, chaste. Think of all the princes who could grip it like rope in their sweating fists, scale my prison, unlock me, liberate me from witches. Three, in crowded squares, inquisitors shaved witches bare to seek out the devil's mark. When they found none, they tried to coax it out, poured boiling lard into the women's eyes, navels, vaginas. The devil marks us all. Four, unshorn we are death itself, serpentine and secret. Our hair conceals our power to bear souls into the world, to feed them from our own flesh, sower, tender, reaper, shepherd, wolf, wool and fur. For our crimes in Eden, temples, beds and caves and back seats, we have been covered by the gods in hair Snaked by goddesses, marked by devils, beheaded by heroes, and weaponized. And still, their fingers, their fingers twitch. They must know what it feels like in their hands. Five. Perhaps if we let it loose, pin it up, braid it in one braid, two braids, cornrow it. Perhaps if we permit, straighten it, relax it iron it, perhaps if we pick it into an afro, perhaps if we shave it, wig it, veil it, perhaps if we cover it in a habit so that from the sky we are indiscernible from each other, they will be satisfied. Perhaps if we pluck it, wax it into triangles and thin lines, send electrical signals into the follicles, perhaps if we trade it for food, for money, for train fare, Christmas presents, Perhaps if we let you snip a lock to worship, perhaps if we let you wrap it around our necks like nooses, you will be satisfied. Six, the Russian army found 14,000 pounds of human hair when they took Auschwitz, veiled and loose, still curled, ribboned, the hair yet unused for socks, for mattresses upon which men would dream of women. Her thread,
0: her rope. Yeah, another really powerful poem that was shorn, from mouths open to her name. Um, can you explain a little bit about how you came into poetry? That's something I'm always curious about. Um, how you know? Do you remember the first poem you fell in love with, or, or what it was that inspired you to want to be a poet? Was there a poem you wrote where you like discovered something, or, or was there anything that like that like led you toward? Yeah. It?
6: So I remember, um, I always knew that I liked reading and writing. I was an English nerd and I knew I liked that. And for a long time I thought I wanted to maybe be a book editor or I wanted to write, um, novels or something like that. And, um, so a lot of like the notebooks and stuff I had from high school and the first couple of years of college are all prose fiction stuff. And, um, when I got to college, um, you know that we always had those huge anthologies of literature, and they were the at least like the freshman and the sophomore ones were so random. Like but they weren't very specific, so you get you know poems that are seven hundred years apart, men, women, all kinds of different things in these anthologies. And so I'm obnoxiously early to everything um, as a character trait, and so I would get to school early, uh, to campus early every morning, and uh, I would sit on this stone bench in front of the building and wait and um, and just flip through the book and read the things that weren't on the syllabus. Cause I was curious. Um, all I'd ever read was what I'd been assigned to read at that point in my life. And I hadn't been super curious. I hadn't gone out of the way. So I was like, I wonder what's in here that they're not teaching. And, um, I just happened to flip to Sharon old's poem, the Pope's penis. <laughs> and I think, I remember thinking like, that's in this, that's in this book. But, um, then I discovered there was like a whole little mini section in the book that was contemporary living living poets, and um, I had never really heard contemporary living poets before. You don't really get a lot of that taught to you in high school, and sometimes mm-hmm. not even in college. Um, and so once I like heard what that sounded like, that it wasn't all like rhyming, um, you know, comparisons of women to flowers, which is fine. I like rhyming in women and flowers. Um, but when I realized like how much open space there was, um, and how, how crazy I could be if I wanted to, um, then that really interested me. Um, at that point I was maybe like 19 or 20 and I realized, started writing poems and I, but I realized really quickly that they weren't as good as like a Sharon Olds. Um, and so I didn't, I, as a sort of self-discipline didn't really write anything Hmm. for the rest of college and grad school, I just read, um, And I wanted to wait to try my hand at it when I really felt like I had studied and understood. And so I really started writing um, kind of towards the end of graduate school.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So what was it that you were going to graduate school for?
6: Um, So after I finished, I got a BA in English. And after I finished that, uh, I was a little untethered just with a life plan. And so I got a master's of liberal arts Mm. um, at LSUS. And um, I focused on, it was kind of a build your own program thing within the humanities and so obviously I focused on uh literature and then more specifically on poetry and towards the end I like I said I started really thinking maybe I could do this and so they let me write a creative thesis sort of mm-hmm. like you would for an MFA. Mm-hmm. and um and then when I finished that and turned it in uh my thesis panel said you should go get an MFA. like none of the people at that school were really poetry teachers and Um, None of them had ever really been able to uh, dig in with me like someone coded an MFA program. And so um, that's what I did. I applied to several MFA programs and uh, ended up choosing Stone Coast at the University of Southern Maine and the rest is history.
0: Oh, very cool. And and very different Southern Maine from uh, Louisiana. Yeah.
6: Um, I thought I should spread out a little bit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So since you started writing really later in life, um, you know, you weren't like writing poems as a teenager. Um, Was there any um, like, like point where you sort of realized what you were doing? Like there was some kind of like lesson or turning point that led you into writing poems that, that, that worked for you. Was there something that that sparked that?
6: Um, I think I, 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 entered this creative writing class in undergrad, um, like when I started getting into writing and it was a really like basic 101 sort of deal. And so you could write anything you wanted to you could write fiction or poetry or nonfiction and bring it into class and do like, a, it was a workshop model sort of thing. And, um, I wrote fiction for it for the most part, because I thought that's what I was good at. And then one day I was sitting in a student lounge and I remembered the story of when I got my period the first time, which is actually in this book as well. It's called Berry Picking. And um, I wrote that poem down and I looked at it and I thought like, I don't think that's half bad. (laughs) And so I decided I would take that to the class as my submission for that month uh, to be workshopped. And this teacher was a real hag. I mean, she was hard on people. I love her. She's really sweet. Hi, Dory LaRue, if you're watching. I'm sorry I called you a hag. Um, <laughs> I love you so much. But she was not playing. And if she thought something was garbage, and she was usually right, um, she would say out loud, like, no. And so I brought this poem in, and I read it, and then I'm bracing. Because it, it's a poem about periods. Maybe this is gross. I don't know what people, just people don't write about this, do they? And she looked around, and she said, does anybody have anything to say? And a couple of people like acted like they might have feedback and she was like, because this is pretty good. So we probably don't need to say much. And so (laughs) at that point, I was like, oh, okay, this is maybe I'll, I'll shift gears. And so I realized that I was a lot more successful with the smaller vehicle and the more creative language. And there was no need to kill all those trees to write novels when I could do the work you know, really quickly and succinctly.
0: Uh, very cool. Yeah. That's a great story. Um, well, let's hear another poem. Um, and I should say yeah. if anybody has any questions for Katie, I'll leave them in the chat windows either on YouTube or Facebook and I will pass yeah. any questions along, another but question. let's hear another poem.
6: Um, this is another one that's, that's <laughs> weird to say it's happy. Once I read it, you'll go, um, are you sure it's happy? Well, poetry uh,
0: happy. Relative. It's poetry so happy relative. That's
6: true. <laughs> um, This is a poem that uh, when I was doing research, uh, one of the things that I was researching was the history of uh, cesarean sections. And uh, while doing that, you know, when you're reading, um, a lot of times when you're reading a journal article, they'll have little hyperlinks in the footnotes. And so I was reading this journal article about C-sections and there was a teeny little footnote um, about something called auto-cesarean And I thought, I wonder what that is, clicked on it, and it is exactly what it sounds like it is, which is women who have given themselves um, C-sections. And um, not much has been studied about it, but from what has been studied, there are only about 40 women who have ever done it and lived Mm -hmm. and been documented. Most women die doing this. So anyway, I found this true story of this woman who did this um, and she, she's one of the women that like told her story in newspapers and magazines. And she had like, you know, little uh, lifetime articles and stuff like that. So um, it was a public story when it happened in 2004, but I don't know that it got to a lot of people. It's amazing story. So anyway, this is another happy poetry, happy poem. Unnamed Hamlet, Oaxaca, Mexico, 2004. Inez's eighth baby died inside her. Her waters long broken, she was too far from town, from the doctor, from the knife she needed to rescue the child from herself. It struggled at the end, then stilled, drowned, just as it glimpsed the shore it knew it would never reach. Tonight, another child, the tent threatens its own death, pressing hopelessly down between her legs and will not come. Her husband is far away in El Campo cutting illegal lumber. No matter, he could never save her anyway. Benito, she screams to her eight-year-old son. He comes solemn and steady. She presses her last coins into his hand, tells him to buy a sharp knife from the tiny shop in the next village. The boy who has seen death before runs too fast to see. Inez rocks back and forth on her knees, remembering the child who had lived and stopped living in her body. Grief felt like contractions in reverse. First, it came in waves so close together that they all seemed like one long storm, one that would level a woman. Then, as time went on, the welcome burden of everyday things returned. The waves spread out. She would be pounding corn and feel it coming rise like a peak, sting her, and ease away. The baby thrashed under her navel and she knew that she would die. By candlelight she lay against the wall of her rough empty house and tipped homemade mezcal back into her throat. Benito returned. Mama, a knife, he said, closing her fingers around it. Take the others away, she croaked. Find help, When she was alone, she finished off the liquor, spat the worm, and pictured every pig she'd slaughtered in her life. Flesh was flesh, animal, muscle, vessels, and veins. She leaned back and pushed her hips forward so her womb was pressed against the skin. The child kicked, and she opened herself. The blood was black in the low light. She cut again. She cut three times hands slipping, screamed and went limp. Her intestines fell warm outside her, blood like a blanket, but then the dead boy's fingers ghosted across her brow and she recalled the unmoving weight of him, the cold stone of that ninth child who never breathed. She inhaled and found the thin film of her uterus, gripped the knife. She slit and found the child's ankle pulled him into the world he cried he cried and she inhaled it like a drug she named him had barely time to love him and she lay him at her side sliced the cord that joined them and began pressing her organs back inside her the best she could her vision flickered in and out the candle died in the night later after the tailor came and sewed her after she was carried in the hills to a lorry, her inside still contracting, after the hours in the dark, after the doctor at last, she saw the boy open his eyes and knew it would be a long time before grief would visit her again, knew that her body, which had been a coffin, an ocean, a tomb, was also a doorway, a candle,
0: a weapon, a ship. Yeah, it's amazing storytelling there. Unladen Hamlet, again, mouths open to her name. Um, And that's just, that's a poem is a great example of um, just the detail that you write with just the the concrete detail carrying through a poem um, and just making it so engaging. Like it was hard to breathe while listening to that, wondering how that was going to turn out.
6: One time Um, I gave a poetry reading and the people actually like, stood like cheered and applauded for I think for, I know. Was, like, they were just so excited that, that, oh, I know
0: I God. mean that is like I mean that's like the entire emotional experience of like a film or a play or something <laughs> and just in one you know three minute read it's just it's just incredible and and it just it shows how much I think the detail like creates story and how important those concrete details are can you talk a little bit about that because it's one of those things that, that makes your poems really stand out is that something you're always aware of Is is using imagery and being very very concrete with it
6: yeah for sure Um, spoiler alert we have our um, writing prompts later on which is about concrete images Um, but one of the things I noticed that I remembered about the poems that I loved uh, was that there was something very physical sensory like five senses about them Um, I remember reading, um, My Indigo by Lee Young Lee, which was a bunch of, like, metaphors for vaginas. Like, and it was, like, this beautiful, like, praise poem for, like, how gorgeous vaginas were. Um, and then, like, the Sharon Olds poems that are always very physical, Five Senses. She has a poem, um, about when she realizes that she's infertile and talks about, like, the decorations in the office of the doctor who's telling her that her uterus is not going to work anymore and um, that kind of thing. So I, in terms of just plain recall, it's very hard for me to remember the flowery, like eight, late 1800s romantic poetry. Um, it's really hard for me to remember like poems that just vaguely describe nature and talk about how pretty things are. Um, what I remember is the objects on the wall of the doctor of Sharon All's when she's being told that she's infertile, you know? And cause those are the things that our memories are made of as well. We don't typically remember like vague feelings. We remember what it smelled like in the room of our father's funeral. Mm-hmm. Um, so in in the hopes of transporting people and in the hope of, hopes of connecting with people, um, maybe our instinct is to say it was a beautiful day but nobody remembers you saying that. They do remember you saying, you know, the, the day was so frigid that her teeth were cracking, you know, like you need, you need that kind of thing if you wanna be remembered. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's often something that I felt that I like would cut out of my own work or that when I was working with students, I would uh, really challenge them to, to get specific. Um, it can seem romantic to be abstract, but um, it's very difficult to do properly um, and a little bit of it goes a long way.
0: Mm-hmm.
6: People yeah. engage when they can use their senses.
0: Yeah. It's right. I mean, it's one of the things that, you know, especially to, to earlier on writers, like there's a sense of, um, well, if I'm vague, then yeah. more people will relate to yeah, it. And it's absolutely. just, that's not how our brains work at all.
6: It's <laughs> the opposite. Yeah, it's Completely. It and they'll say that too. They're like, I just wanted people to be able to relate to it. And then I'll show them a poem, like Sharon Old's being infertile. And there's like the 17 year old boy who's over there, like, you know, and they like, did you relate to Sharon Olds, this like 60-year-old woman talking about infertility? And he, oh, yes, of course he did, you mm-hmm. know, and that's the whole point. Um, so yeah, it is It is opposite of what you'd think. The more specific you can be, the more people you'll probably lodge in their brains and they'll mm-hmm. remember your story.
0: Yeah, I, I wonder, I mean, do you do you find it possible to enjoy romantic era poetry and before? Because I, you know, I'm guilty <laughs> to admit it, but I, it's really hard to. And I, you know, I... I feel like we've gotten better, (laughs) you know,
4: I mean, I I don't want to say it
0: out loud, but I think that that we're all like every poet here watching this stream is better than a lot of romantic poets um, just because we know what we're doing a little more. But is that too blasphemous to say? I don't know.
6: Yeah. I mean, (laughs) yeah, maybe we're like all flying too close to the sun right now. But um, like, I think there's some poetry. I mean, like if you look at the Canterbury Tales, like it's very specific and meaty. but then it was like it went out of fashion
0: mm-hmm. yeah and that's so a great point because the canterbury like, tales is wonderful and shakespeare's wonderful but then yeah, it does like It wasn't go to always phase.
6: like flowers mm-hmm. and you know fields of daffodils or what courtyards bloom and all that mess and um and i appreciate like why that all happened historically and the whole pastoral movement and why you know people were worshiping nature when they lived in like dirty london
0: why home. was it I mean, i've never heard that so so why was it that 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 shifted to that do you think?
6: Oh yeah. So like the whole pastoral movement really happened when like c- cities like London got really big and it mm-hmm. was the first industrial revolution. So that was when they first started having like smog and pollution and everything states it's overcrowded. And so that's when you start getting people writing about like shepherds and, you know, and when there aren't any shepherds anymore and they, they start writing about, you know, the beautiful fields and I will, you know, crown you with roses and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was very fashionable for a very long time. Um, and, the, and the thing that really is funny is that when you when, well, I shouldn't put words in your mouth. When I get a student who, um, is like, say 20 years old and I say like, write a poem or write what you think a poem is, and they come out so much like the 1850s, mm-hmm. um, because that's, again, like they, they don't usually get taught a whole lot of, I mean, usually the textbooks stop at. Eliot and Pound. Um, So they're shocked that poems are not all like rhyming and about Mm -hmm. sunsets. And again, like I shouldn't, I'm not dogging on it. I think two of the poems I've submitted to Rattle that have been published were Villanelle. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, rhyming and i like all that stuff but
0: but Um, very concrete though you know but they
6: were very concrete (laughs) yeah not a lot of not a lot of abstract ideas in in those villanelles
0: well that's fascinating i didn't know so that's my thing i got to learn today i always try to learn something that's my thing i didn't know it was the it was the industrial revolution yeah very interesting okay so so let's hear another poem um
6: okay what's up next let's see what's up next um i'll save my last happy one for the last part so i can leave on a happy note Um, so again, I'm, um, splitting my time between writing about other things and storytelling and then writing about, um, myself and I have gone through some kind of big life events that felt worth talking about. And so one of the things that's happened to me over the past year is that, uh, I lost my father after, uh, he dealt with Alzheimer's for, um, -hmm. gosh, it was like a six year deal, from when he was first diagnosed until the very end. Um, And so we had a lot of years where it was like we all knew he was sick and he knew he was sick, but he was still fine. Like you could still talk to him and go out and have fun with him. Um, But there was a pall over everything because we all knew what was was coming. And so this year it did finally come. And uh, anyway, so I was thinking back over that and this really important thing happened. Um, Well, I'll just read the poem and then we can maybe talk about it. The poem is called, My Father Asks Me to Write a Poem. It is near the end of my father's life. His memories like old neighbors who drop in and stay a long time, picking up where they left off, then careful not to stay overstay are out the door. It is a good day and we idle on the lake. Maybe because he knows there is not much time. He has given up asking, Why don't you go to law school? Or, when will you write something that will make you some money? Now, when he touches me, he does it for a long time, trembling. The waves rock us as the sunset fires up the horizon. He does not need to say, this is beautiful. He does not need to say, I am grateful you had a child in time for me to see him. He does not need to tell me he is afraid. He only says, please write a poem about this moment. And finally, near the end of his life, he is glad I know how.
0: Yeah, very touching poem. And, and so sorry for your dad uh, passing oh, away. You. Um, writing, you know, moving from the poems that are about other things, about history, is it, Did you find it difficult to write about yourself again? Was, was that something that you had any trouble with um, or was it an easy transition?
6: In the beginning, I resisted it. Um, As I said, I felt like I didn't really have a lot of stories to tell. And that's probably fair because I was 23 or something. And I have not a lot of stuff that happened. But um, like when I look back and notice the times that I've written about myself, it's when I had a child and Mm -hmm. when I lost my dad. And um, so, I mean, I I think it's pretty significant life events that justify ones like i'm not navel gazing i'm marking like some big life experiences Mm -hmm. um and so no it's not it's not hard it's not that i struggle against it or i'm shy i'm not shy and i'm not really very private person um i just don't want to write about myself unless there's something like really important that people need to know you Mm -hmm. know if i have a bruise that's a funny color i'm not going to write a poem about it but like i just you know i kind of just let the work justify itself. I try not to take up space with things that don't carry their own weight. So, and a lot so lot- I have a few like in my forthcoming, mm-hmm. not well, I shouldn't say forthcoming, in my work in progress, um, I do have some films about um, just losing my dad and watching my family get older and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah a lot of people talk about poems as is sort of vehicles for coming to terms with emotions and like understanding mm-hmm. their lives and things like that and um and, and I wonder how that works with your poems that are about like historical characters um do you get the same feeling of sort of I don't know. Is there the same feeling of a poem that's written about somebody else? Is it trying to understand like their life come to the same, like somehow a poem sort of has to be a transformational tool, you know? So does it feel different writing about yourself versus writing about other people? Or do you think that it somehow like you're in everything too, because it's all your perspective and and head, you know?
6: Yeah. I mean, in a craft aspect, it's, it's very different. I usually, when I'm writing about other people, I try to write in a way, maybe sounds weird, but it's like a way that's politically respectful. So I do stay in a third person um, place and I don't get as like weird or metaphorical or you know too overly flowery or creative with their stories out of respect. Whereas if I'm writing about myself or like in a poem like Shorn about the hair, um, I can go wild because I'm not, you know, necessarily picking people's stories to tell. But when I'm writing those more documentary poems, um, I do approach them differently for, um, with a little bit more restraint and discipline out of, um, out of respect. So they're different. The they're, one's not harder or easier than the other. But yes, um, I think, you know, if if you're not having at least a little epiphany somewhere in there, it's it's not worth writing. So the historical poems um, ultimately feel the same when I'm finished with them as a poem, like the one about my father, because again, the goal is to, we're like writing a poem about Inez and the um, auto cesarean section. I'm hoping that people who don't have uteruses will read that poem and, you know, get excited and clap and cry out for Inez. Mm -hmm. Um, So and and I hope the same thing about people who still have their fathers if they read you know my poem about my dad, um, so it's all the same idea, which is that I want people to have to be able to share experiences that aren't their own. And if I don't feel like I've had that epiphany in any kind of poem, then I, then it's going in the trash pile. Ho- trash pile. Mm-hmm. So.
0: Um, a quick yeah. question from uh, Judith Fay. She just asked um, Sharon Olds. You mentioned Sharon Olds and Li uh, Liung Lee. Lee. Um, any other living poets that you especially appreciate?
6: Yes. Um, so Tim Siebels is one of my very favorite poets. Um, and one of the things that I think is special about him and one of the things that I've really learned from his poetry, he's very successful at writing long poems, um, he doesn't get trapped with like the if it goes over one, like a lot of writers get nervous when it goes over the page limit or goes over the page mark in Microsoft Word. Um and I, I used to do that as well. But like the way that Tim can um sustain the energy of a poem over five, six, 10 pages. It's kind of magical. You don't see it very often. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's probably because a lot of writers don't trust a reader to stay with them that long, which I've had that thought as well. Like, is this, are they still, I don't know. Um, But he keeps me gripping my chair through, you know, a six page poem. And he also is a a narrative poet and does, and he does a lot of persona poems. I don't do persona poems because it makes me nervous to Mm -hmm. like pretend that I am a person. Uh, But I get a lot of my third person storytelling stuff from learning from reading him. I love him a lot. I love Patricia Smith. Um, she was actually one of my teachers. And I know oh, that really? she run the run the Rattle Prize at mm-hmm. one point, the Poetry Prize, a long time ago. Um, but same thing there. Patricia Smith with the five senses, she has that poem can't remember what it's called this makes me so mad when this happens but it's a poem in sections about the female orgasm and the last line is are we god <laughs> um, it's such a great such a great poem but like she was great in terms of and like influences and stuff like that she was great for five senses, gritty detail but also humor like you know i think a lot of poems are missing maybe a little sense of mm-hmm. humor um and so she was great for that for learning that as well um yeah, so Tim and Patricia, yeah. great, great writers. I always love to read Stephen Dunn. Um, actually, back in the day, um, like one of the first, when the internet was a thing and search engines were a thing, it's like very first poetry website that was on the internet um, would let you like go and just click a button and it would give you a random poem. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them weren't like older anthology kind of poems. But I, I was like 14 and I clicked it and I got this poem by Stephen Dunn called Poem for People Who Are Understandably Too Busy to Read Poetry. And I, I remembered it my whole life. Like, I love him. He's a very, like, plain spoken, dry humor kind of guy. But all of his poems, almost to a T, are narrative storytelling poems. So mm-hmm. he was a great, I, I don't know him, but he was a great teacher for me. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, he's a great person. I got to interview him at his house, um, you know, toward the oh, end of wow. it. Yeah, not too long ago. Um, I think he died about two, three years ago. Yeah, um, but it was yeah. like a pilgrimage. It's out in the middle of like rural Maryland and you got to drive into Pittsburgh and then drive down through the, you know, and then it's just this Mecca and so many people come through his house. He was a great, great teacher and great person, too. It was really cool to meet yeah. him. Um, Well we have time for like two more poems So maybe like one poem then a couple more questions And then another poem So uh, what's your second to last? How many
6: I have so yes sounds good Um, Okay so this poem um, Is called Pulling Out the Pins And again I guess women's hair is Just gonna show up at my work Till I die So pulling out the pins I read a story Of a rape survivor who almost Got away but was caught at last by her hair. Afterward, she always cut it short, a stay against whatever bides its time in shadow. In some cultures, budding breasts are beaten down with hot stones, wooden spoons, just to stop them growing. The mothers strike with violence and love, whatever it takes to spare their girls becoming child brides or something worse. At 19, I would climb 2000 stairs a day, smoke and star to shrink the culprits of my body that drew so many large insisting hands, even mostly disappeared. I wasn't safe and knew it. What other parts of us will we decide to cover up or disappear or lose to live in order to outrun what's always just a little faster? It's sinister, warm breath, two steps behind. What else will we erase or batter down just so we can walk home in this world? I still wonder about the woman years later. In my fantasies, she has grown elegantly old, her wrinkled lips bending in a smile. As for what must be the thousandth time now, some gentle soul she chose and chose, pulls out the pins and lets her long white hair tumble, liberated
0: down her back and that was pulling out the pins another great example of just the the detail and the, the way the images carry emotion um and so what is this manuscript you're working on um what is um how is this different than than mouths open uh to her name or to name her um <laughs> you know what is the is there a certain theme at all or is it is it focused on um yeah you, know, you mentioned more it's focused on yourself
6: yeah i mean that's it's a great question so um I think every every successive book that I write is less um, constructed. So the first book was like strictly this project book that told this single story over the course of all the different poems in the book. And then Mouths Open to Name Her is a um, mixture of those historical research poems and some about my own birth experience. Um, and this new collection, just kind of like the connections between the poems are a little bit um, more broad. Um, a lot of the poems are, um, dealing with me personally, um, in, in terms of an eating disorder. And, and then I have poems that kind of echo out from there, like pulling out the pins, um, or the blades, um, that, uh, kind of expand into a larger view of like feminism and violence against women, um, and, and move from there. So, and then there are some outlying poems that I have a couple poems about COVID. And then I've got these poems about um about my dad, of course. And that and a lot of those also get wrapped into feminism and my views of men and women and patriarchy and stuff. So mm-hmm. it's a lot less like rigidly about a thing, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm kind of excited about. It's nice to relax a little bit.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you have a title for it?
6: Um, it's, I'm hoping that the poem is, I mean, that the book is going to be called The Blades, um, and that The Blades will Uh be the anchoring, uh, poem for it.
0: Oh, very cool. Yeah. And so, uh, so that's The Blades and The Blades, of course, the poem that won, um, the Reader's Choice Award for the Rattle Poetry Prize 2018, I think it was, um, Uh, One thing, we haven't really talked about your writing process, even though we're almost at the end of the show. Um, And one of the things I want to ask about is just your sense of organizing a poem into a shape. Because one of the things that's interesting, I kind of noticed reading your poems, they tend to have this kind of like free wildness contained within sort of regular stanzas. So there's kind of like a push and pull against that. And it's the kind of poem that... um, you know, people who I, I always get emails and say, this is prose with line breaks, you know, like they, <laughs> they can't hear the music of speech. They're sort of the music and rhythms of speech coming through poetry, pushing against this container. Um, mm-hmm. So how does how does the writing process work shaping a poem into that and and just how much revision goes into into a poem? Like, what is your writing process like for a for a single poem?
6: Yeah, um, I studied under Annie Finch, who is a strict formalist. I don't think she's ever written a poem that didn't wasn't in a closed form or didn't have a meter or something. And um, and that's because when I started my MFA, I thought I was going to do formal poetry. I really liked villanelles and sonnets and things. Um, and I left that mostly for for free verse. But I love this the stricture of a stanza. Um, so I like just arbitrarily almost deciding before I sit down to write. You know, we're going to try this in quatrains, or we're going to try this in you know couplets or whatever. And then, um, the you know, there's a, a internal challenge, sort of like you'd have with a villanelle, where I have to figure out like, okay, what does this stanza's work do, and what does the next stanza's work do, and how are they separate? Are they just repeating each other? That kind of thing. Um, I do have you know, some poems that aren't in regular stanzas and just run down the left margin of the page. But um, I really do like the strictures of some kind of regularity or pattern in a poem that challenges me not to just run down the left side of the page. Mm-hmm. Um, it challenges me to really think about every word I'm using. Um, I was even taught, um, again, by, by Annie and the whole formalist movement, Like if you're even if you're writing a free verse poem and you have a line in the poem that's like a lot longer than all the other lines, you better have a really good reason. Mm -hmm. You know, why are you doing that? It looks very strange to break your pattern. So again, like when I write the first line of a poem, I have now made a decision about the general length of line here. Mm -hmm. And if a line is much shorter than that or longer than that, I better have thought about why that is things like that. Mm-hmm. I think a lot about, uh, end words on lines and leaving a line on it. Like i never end a line on an article or a conjunction or anything like that. It's usually a verb or a noun, uh, a concrete noun. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the kinds of things I think about. I don't usually just write a poem, uh, without first giving myself some kind of formal constraint. Um, and I don't draft like journaling. i think I chew on something and think about it a lot before I write anything down. So I don't have a lot of rough drafts. Mm-hmm. I chew on it a lot, think about it a lot. And then finally sit down and it comes out and, and usually generally the shape it's going to be.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, it's so, nice to hear that. Cause, Cause most people don't, don't say that. Most people say that they, you know, 87 drafts and um, you know, I can't even imagine what that's like myself.
6: I was um, actually really excited when you started doing the poets respond thing because every now and then in it, Annie told me this too in graduate school. Annie Finch is great if you ever get the chance to, she does do private lessons sometimes um, for lay people, which is great. But she said like, don't be afraid if a poem comes out of you sometimes and it's just done. (laughs) That's okay for that to happen. Like you don't have to be embarrassed about that or lie about it and say you revised it for years. Like. And I thought that was what was really fun about poets respond is like, we all have to admit that we wrote this yesterday (laughs) Uh and we liked it enough and thought it was good enough that we sent it to you. Do you know what I mean? And so like, I think it's okay to say, you don't revise, revise, revise. Like Mm -hmm. I do it a lot. I chew on it in my head. I don't write about something the first minute. I have the idea. Um, I sleep on it for quite a long time, but then when I'm ready to sit down, you know, I do revise, but not Mm -hmm. obsessively.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's really interesting to hear your perspective on that. And one of the things, it's just, I think having a shape to a poem that knows what it's doing, there's a way that, like, you know, you, you never get a second chance to make a first impression, you know? And you before <laughs> you even read, you see that the poem has a kind of shape to it. And mm-hmm. then you have a little more confidence in the poet that they're going to take you somewhere comfortably, yeah. you know? Like, they know how to dance. And so yeah. that's kind of the Yeah, of yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, which is why, you know, in our workshops, I always mention that, it, you know, it's important to have a shape. Yeah. Um, don't
6: take for granted that everything's just mm-hmm. going to run down your left margin and the right margin can be a mess. You know, like think about all that stuff on the page for sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Very cool. Well, cool to hear that. Um, let's finish out with one last poem. Or,
6: yeah. So um, I'll finish out with The Blades, which is the poem that um, won the Rattles Reader's Choice Award.
0: Okay, well, before we do, since you're going to, I didn't think we we're going to do that one. Let me pull it up. Oh. Um, but. Um, if you were going to read it, I wanted to ask like, where did that poem come from? Do you remember that the idea? It's such an imaginative yeah. kind of magical space that's created there. Was that something that mm-hmm. you, was there some kind of inspiration for that?
6: Yeah. Um, this is very, this is a very strange story. So there is a poem by Charles Bukowski, who I know it's not popular to like, um, And again, I suck and I don't remember the name of it, but there's an image in the poem where he says, imagine if everyone you passed on the street who had sex last night, had a red light shining above their head, (laughs) right? And so you could just walk down the street and see everybody's light shining and know what they did. And for whatever reason, and I read that a decade ago, but for whatever reason, it always stuck in my head how funny it would be or how weird it would be if people had outward physical signs of the things they had done. Like if every liar had like a green finger or, you know, whatever it is. And so it stuck in my head as this like weird, fantastical sort of fairy tale thing. Um, And then I thought, well, what would it look like? What would the physical sign—green finger, red light—be for women who had been sexually assaulted? What would their image look like in that fantasy? And so that's uh, kind of how I came to this image of the blades, which is again, Charles Bukowski is probably not how you told that story was going to start, but it <laughs> yeah,
0: is. it's, it's a very interesting—a uh, very interesting story. Uh, well, go ahead, I have it up, so go ahead.
6: Okay, great. The Blades. In the new world, as the goddess dictated, each time a man touched a woman against her will, each time he exposed himself, each time he whistled, dropped something in her drink, photographed her in secret, she sprouted a wing from her spine, not feathered like birds or angels, not cellular, translucent, veined like dragonflies, but a wing like a blade, like a sword hammered flat, thin as paper, one wing per wrong. At first the women lamented, all their dresses needed altering, their blankets shredded, their own hair sliced off like a whisper if it grew down their backs. And those misused by fathers, bosses, drunken strangers, evening after evening, were blade-ridden, their statures curved downward like sorrow under such weight. But this was not the old world of red letters or mouthfuls of unspoken names, not the old world of women folded around their secrets like envelopes of stark rooms where men asked what they'd done to deserve this. And the goddess whispered to the women in their dreams and they awakened, startled, and knew the truth They pinned up their hair, walked out into the morning, their blades glittering in the sun, sistering them to each other. They shared, they searched for the woman with the most blades, found her unable to stand, left for dead, nearly crushed beneath the blade's weight. They called her queen. They lifted her with hands gentle as questions, flung her into the air. Saw her snap straight, beat the wings at last, and they followed her, a swarm of them, terrible and thrumming, to put the blades to use.
0: Yeah, that's just an amazing poem, and that's going to be the title poem for your next book, so everybody should look for that, The Blades.
5: Yeah, hope so.
0: But, but uh, so, I mean, such a timely poem for, for right now, too. Yeah. Um, so thanks for sharing that, kind of going full circle to the first poems we read.
5: Yeah.
0: Um, and Poetry Spawns. Um, yeah. Thanks so much for being a guest, Katie. It's been a pleasure talking to you and yes, getting to so know you a little bit. Time.
6: Thank yeah, you.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much. Um, and, and congratulations on these great books that you got and all the great work that you do.
6: Thank you, Sam. I appreciate it. Yeah. Bye, everybody.
0: Bye. Take care. Yeah. This is Katie Bickham. Um, Katie is, uh, you can find more of Katie's work at her website, which is katiebickham.net katiebickham.net and um, the newest book right here is of course Mouths Open to Her Name which I'll put on screen one last time Um, just a wonderful book I really encourage everybody to check it out it's one of the most powerful you know project books as Katie called it um, that I've read in a long time Um, and there it is from LSU Press Um, so we're going to take a quick break and go to um, our open lines We're back. Thanks so much for your patience. As I mentioned, uh, this is the open lines, so feel free to join us over the Zoom link. The prompt for this week was to write a poem, uh, if this were a blank poem, and I have to confess, I didn't finish my poem. It was one of those weeks. It was going to be, um, and I'll finish it, um, It was uh, if this were a Poppy Bush poem. Um, Poppy is the nickname for George Herbert Walker Bush. I've been thinking about him a lot last week um, and uh, he's just a fascinating character in my opinion but it was one of those times where the first stanza came out as um, rhymed um, tetrameter and then it just like the poem got stuck and I didn't it wasn't working in that form but it, like I, so I had to like scrap it and ran out of time to rewrite it but uh, maybe next week we'll share that but let's see what you have let's go first to uh, let's go to Angela Gardner right away um, hey Angela how you doing
7: Good. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great. And so, um, first of all, congratulations because we're publishing a poem of yours um, that you submitted for Poet Respond. We um, got to wait like a year. But, um, <laughs> but I was really happy to uh, see that, you know, get that poem out. It was a poem that you submitted for Poet Respond. And um, I thought it was just great. But I don't know what happened that week, but there were poems that fit better or something. So I brought it to our meeting. and Alan just loved it. Um, mm-hmm. So it was so cool. It kind of saved my meeting
8: because wasn't worth-
0: there wasn't anything he loved. And then okay. there was your poem. So that was great. But thanks for sharing that, Angela. Do you want to tell uh, me what that poem is about? Let's see what you have. Let's go.
7: Yeah. Um, the poem that I wrote, and it's funny because um, I'm actually going under the name um, Angela Russo-Gartner for mm-hmm. for the Poets Respond, um, for for the poem that you're going to be published and um, what it's like to live that long. And it's really, I wrote it in the perspective of a woman, but it's re- it was really about my uh It was actually, I wrote it on the day that my grandfather's birthday party Mm -hmm. and I submitted that Sunday and I was just thinking about how long he has lived and, you know, he was 97 and actually he ended up passing away, um, in March, Mm -hmm. but, um, and, but you know, just to live that long and to be with all those memories. And, you know, I kind of wrote it based on off, based off of him, but in kind of a, a woman, like what would it be like to live that long? 97 is a long time to live. And um, we were always hoping he would get to 100, but that ended up being his last birthday. Mm-hmm.
0: So, Yeah, well, it was just a really touching poem and we just loved it. So I'm so glad you could share that. Um, but no, I just have to wait a whole year to read it.
7: Because. I am like super excited. like that was like the highlight of my like I mean, I'm just like I'm so excited and thankful for this community because I mean, it's it's funny because when I started writing poetry, like I always wrote poetry. It was always the thing I always did, but um. But in 2020, like, I found Rattle, and ever since then, I wrote every single week, and it kind of brought me, you guys brought me back to poetry, so to be published um, next year even, it's just going to be, I'm just, I'm just so happy.
0: So. <laughs> well, yeah, I was definitely very happy for you. Um, so what is it that you want to share today, though?
7: I, I have, like, three poems, but I just wanted to share something happy, because be, it's been, like, a crazy week, and mm-hmm. I actually submitted to um about like the news this week but i thought i would kind of share something a little bit more happy um and it's almost a metaphor of kind of what's going on but um i was thinking about doing the open cookie okay (laughs) (laughs) and uh the open cookie I submitted in April and it's about MIT so MIT um you know the students decided everyone loves Oreos I mean maybe not everybody but like people like Oreos so they try to have a machine to see about the split of Oreos and that's kind of what it was about and and they actually never ended up you know, getting like this, the like complete split where oh, it yeah. was like cream on both sides, but they they were trying to figure out how to get the split like at least on the one side. And they did that, but they had a machine to turn the cookie. So they made the machine to kind of turn this cookie. And I thought it was interesting. It's kind of like a funny metaphor if you really think about it. Mm-hmm. Like what the world is, we can't get on both sides. Yeah, <laughs> the cookie yeah that's on true. Both sides of the that cookie.
0: definitely is true. <laughs> that's a great metaphor. Yeah. The, the Oreo <laughs> theory of politics.
7: <laughs> yeah, right. So yeah. I, I thought I'd open that because I always, I loved, I, I'm a cookie I mean, I'm a cookie monster myself. I love cookies. And I just thought it'd be like a fun poem to read just about like the open cookie about, so that's that's what I thought, like something fun. Like I haven't wrote something fun in a while, so I thought I would share that.
0: <laughs> okay, well, I've got it up, so go ahead.
7: The open cookie. Teeth with chunks of black pieces when I bite into the biscuit filled with cream without caring if I can twist or turn or dunk into a glass of milk. I choke on the sweetness and brush away the leftover dust before ants carry off the repast. The math genius's machine can't figure out an equal severance. Maybe the mysterious hieroglyphics pattern on its cookie sides can solve the wheel's formula, but I hate when I open the shiny plastic film tab to see rows of crumbling pillars that look like they're half eaten by a blue furry monster.
0: That's great. I love that. And then it reminds me, I saw a meme that was like making fun of conspiracy theories, but it was like um, you know, pointing out all the different um, masonic symbols on the Oreo cookie. That reminds me of that. <laughs> I, think-
7: I know you don't want to know what it means, but it's it's fun to look at. I <laughs> you know what I mean?
0: <laughs> for sure. Well, thanks for sharing that. Always a pleasure, Angela.
7: Always a pleasure. Thank you. Have yep. a great day. You too. Bye. Thanks.
0: Okay. Bye. It was Angela Gartner with the Open Cookie. Okay, let's go to Maggie Westfold right now. It's great to see you, Maggie. So, what is it that you would like to share? And where are you? I think I don't think you've been on before. So, where are you calling from?
9: Ames, Iowa. Ah, excellent. Um, No, I have not been on before. I I love Rattle poetry. I've subscribed for quite some time, and I've watched some Rattle your Rattle casts. I just uh, I happened to watch uh, uh, Mark Gibbons and uh, heard about the uh, if is Sam Shepard poem? If mm-hmm. this were a Sam Shepard poem, and I, uh, I actually had uh, this John Lithgow poem came to mind immediately. I had to do a little work on it, but uh, I had work. I had written it uh, some time ago, but uh, it it fit the project. So very cool. Kind of- yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to hearing
0: this. If this were a John Lithgow poem, let's go ahead whenever you're ready.
9: Okay. If this were a John Lithgow poem, my palpitating heart would pin, Dear John, I reached midlife free of a single silly celebrity crush, save one brief 60s fling, George. But John, I only decided to like, not crush George, for my need to to, to contest those giddy girls who mortified me in the name of all young women, their screaming lack of self-control, good grief, fainting over John, Paul, even Ringo, shaggy shrimp of percussionists. George seemed lonely, John, and needy. I had to. It was a short-lived quiet affair. Not one scream, I told few, not even George. And then I let him go. Crushing was not my color. Years passed, John, quite nicely. My happy heart committed and then along came you in that needy young banker role coming all unglued each time one sensuous albeit married brunette approached your teller window. I exited that theater John wishing with every smoldering fiber of my committed wifely being that your fictitious bank sat just around our corner, that I could line up at your make-believe teller window for some serious message-bearing eye-batting and hand you a note lovingly scripted on pearl pink linen. Come with me, John, calmly and quietly. My note would have effused sultry evocative lavender, John. More family busy, happily committed years flew by with mere fleeting thoughts of you, John, until suddenly on my television screen, shrunk to fit black leather pants. On the third rock leading man, gulp. Black leather caressed your adulterous banker body and did not one thing to still my happily married committed heart, John. That shows cancellation after not enough seasons may have saved my rock solid marriage. Years passed peacefully. Life was good. Happily married, committed wife and mother found more time for love of poetry and looked online for a copy of Seamus Haney poems. Up popped you on my 17-inch lap laptop screen, John. Same smoldering smile graced the front cover of your collection of favorite poems. A mere month from Medicare moan slipped from my lips and I forgot about Seamus. John, John my poetry soulmate, you were back, John, you were back. I had missed you so, and John, if this were a John Lithgow poem, I swear, on my happy wife committed heart, I would not have let loose my poesy, let it pin plunge your heart, plunge your heart with my words, dear John. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that was great Maggie very fun poem if this were a John Lithgow poem I didn't know he had a a collection of his favorite poems um do, do you do you have a copy of it where are they good poems
9: <laughs> pardon
0: do you have a copy of that book are they good poems uh
9: yeah yes I do it is it's an excellent yeah it's all the poems his uh father read to him as he grew up Oh wow. uh, yeah and uh and then on the facing page is uh a little story about the what he remembers about the poem. It's a wonderful
0: book. Very cool. And, well, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, very fun poem, Maggie, and uh, so glad you could join us today.
9: Thank you. Yep. It's fun.
0: Yeah. Take care. Um, let's go. to Mark Grinier hasn't been on in a while. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah, good to see. You. I don't know. I mean, it said in a while, but I don't know if you've. Ha- I know you always participate in the workshop and the critique of the week. I don't know if you've uh, ever been on. have you shared is- a poem before.
8: No, I've never well I, I I once sent my FangTooth poem to you and you read it, but I did, could, didn't could not have the the wherewithal to, to read it from here. So Very this cool. time I do.
0: Excellent. Well I'm glad to see you and have you join. So uh which which who did you pick for the uh for the prompt?
8: Charles Bukowski.
0: Oh there we go. Yeah. And I never <laughs> would have thought he inspired the blades. That's fascinating. So uh, here we go. If this were a Bukowski poem, anything you want to say about it before you read?
8: Uh no, I, I just liked the prompt, and it, it was it was a good prompt.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was very fun. Okay, so go ahead whenever you're ready.
8: If this were a Bukowski poem, it would probably be obscene, spoken with a whiskey-soaked and cigarette-roughened voice, gravelly in its slice of life, streetwise, full of shattered hopes. The restlessness of a working man still trying to find some joy. And the quoi of Streetwalker blocks in the city's core, where whites and blacks, Latin freaks and Asian geeks crunch and break as they bump near thoughtless through their nights, their one more days, living their lives in rundown apartments near downtown L.A. The city not not of angels now, but home to the disenfranchised. Restless masses with boring wives and thoughtless kids who couldn't care less. About middle-aged men attacking their shrinking time with two fat whores in smoke-filled bars as dark as the drear of an agile mind in a hopeless place. Where poetry died like the tears of a child left behind. when he stepped outside into murky days and pointless nights, the daily of, daily grind of feeding one's face where, where would-be angels ride in expensive cars past workers sitting on bus stop benches, waiting still for another chance to be someone, something more than another loser making his way to illusionless visions of broken days and empty nights, Walking alone through homeless streets in work boots grown weightier by day by day. Like words descending on apathy, another poem for another night. Coughed out into a fucked up world on a smoggy day.
0: Excellent. That's very much a Bukowski poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Mark. Great to see you. you. Okay, let's go next to, uh, to Vicky Miko.
2: Hi there. Hey, Vicki. Yeah, great to see you. Hey. It's, it's yo, been a while. How are yo. you doing? Yeah. It, ah, it has been. And it's, um, yeah, things just haven't uh, worked out time-wise for me at all. But um, what a great evening. Um, and <laughs> the poems are so meaningful and thoughtful. I just, uh, my poem is uh, nonsense, uh, <laughs> no, which great. is kind of where sort of, I like nonsense. I love Shel Silverstein. Mm-hmm. So my poem is, uh, if this were a shell Silverstein poem.
0: Okay. Oh, hang on. Um, I pulled up the wrong one. Let's see. Here we go. Okay. Go ahead. Whenever you're ready.
2: Okay. If this were a shell Silverstein poem, lucky would be a lucky dog following himself around all day, never learning how to sit and stay. Lucky just likes to sniff and pee until one day he peed on a log. How foolish could he be? Who'd ever live in a rotten old log? Oh, that mama scunt had lots to say. Lucky learned a lot that day. He even learned to sit and stay.
0: <laughs> that is a great poem. I love that. This is, if this were a Shel Silverstein poem. And for those just listening, uh, you got to check out the drawings that uh, that Vicki included with this. Thanks for sharing that, but uh, it's cool to see you always, Vicki.
2: Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, my pleasure. Great show.
0: Okay, let's go to Brent Stauffer next. Hey. Hello. Man. Yeah. Oh, excellent. We're working yes. right away.
10: Yeah. Wow, that's amazing.
0: <laughs> so uh, what do you got for us tonight?
10: Well, I started trying to do the prompt poem. Um, and it was going to be along the lines of if this were a Tchaikovsky, piano concerto number three played by Yung-Chin Lim poem, mm-hmm. um, but I kept running against I kept running up against two things. One is I kept going back and forth between about it being a poem and about the performance that inspired the poem. Mm-hmm. Then I also I didn't want to draw an inevitable comparison between my work and that of Tchaikovsky so then I realized that if I just cut straight to the chase about what moved me and what inspired me to write a poem I it could be a poet's response because the performance was the gold medal winning performance of the Van Clyburn competition which happened last week which is not something that I follow but a Clip of it appeared on Facebook due to its um, stirring qualities, um, so much so that the conductor at the end of it was openly weeping. Oh, wow. Uh, as she conducted, and, and then at the end gave him a, a big hug, and the roar from the audience was of a variety that you seldom hear. But anyway. Yeah, very cool.
0: Uh, Another thing so, i to. Yeah, look up after the show. Yeah,
10: yeah. <laughs> so then I checked out the actual uh, the entire performance, and I and I'm, I must have watched it like three times by now. And um, so I wrote a poem about it.
0: Okay. Well, here go Here's ahead my... whenever you're ready. I got it up. It's on hearing. I don't know how. Tchaikovsky is. I say that right?
10: Yeah, Tchaikovsky's Tchaikovsky. Piano Concerto Number no. Three, played by Yun Chan Lim. <clears throat> I begin to feel the moon rise from the marrow as thunderous hammers cascade against taut strings. A stately flurry heralds the arrival of a great and restless yearning. The keys follow one another in such a furious succession, the eye is too dazzled to ascertain one finger from its blurry brother, but each note, distinct, crystalline, is all alone and aching to be broken.
0: Oh, excellent. Yeah, definitely going to have to look over that. That's Tchaikovsky's Piano Concerto Number 3, played by Yun-Chan Lim. Yeah, definitely yeah. something I want to check out later. So uh, make a note Ooh. of that. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Brent. Awesome. Always a pleasure.
10: Yeah, I it was a good prompt. I wouldn't have written the poem without the prompt, even though it turned out not to be a prompt.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I always feel so. like uh, everybody's free to take poems in whatever direction they go. Yeah, excellent. Thanks, Brent.
10: Okay, see you later. Thanks. Yep. Yeah, bye.
0: Bye. Uh, let's go to Carolyn Cod next. Hey, Carolyn, are you there? There Hello. You go. Hello, how you doing today?
11: Okay. How are you? Glad to know you got through the fire okay. Yeah, yeah, everything
0: is all back to normal, and now we have a nice fire break down one side, so nothing can kind of burn up that canyon. So it's, so we're happy, kind of happy about it. You know, it's <laughs> a rough way to do it, but it is nice having a fire break. Um, so what do you have that you would like to share?
11: Well, I have this poem called Wondering, and it's a poem that I, I wrote some time ago, um, in memory of a friend of mine who who she was my friend since kindergarten, and we grew up together. But but then she passed away. Um, and I, I first thought of it way back in the spring when there was a prompt of archetype, mm-hmm. and I saw that um, that could be one of them could be creator or artist, and that's what made me think of this poem again.
0: Oh, very good. And
11: then in May I was away on the East Coast visiting friends and family and. Then I got back, and then there was the fire, and so <laughs> finally I thought I'll try to do it.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm so glad you could share it. This is Wondering by Carolyn Codd. Go ahead whenever you are ready.
11: Okay. Wondering. I had been wondering why she didn't come out in any of my poems, or why I couldn't fit her in. I've written somewhere other friends appeared, and it seemed strange to me that she wasn't there. Close friends we were, but maybe it had something to do with the kind of friends we were not ordinary friends, more like Siamese friends, born 10 days apart, but somehow already attached. It was the milkman who told my mother, who lived one street away from hers, that Jan had arrived first. And then, although in separate families, we grew up together, in some ways, raising each other in ways parents never can. We went to school together, there and at home, playing and doing ordinary things, normal everyday kid things, she often complained of being bored. And I was wondering why. Then as I saw her drawing, painting, creating, collages, soft sculpture, all sorts of marvelous, beautiful things, her own out of the ordinary character, her absolutely unique boutique, I began to understand. So at last I had some thoughts about why I couldn't fit her in but like a brilliant shooting star that comes and shines and streaks, that can't be caught and leaves too soon. Suddenly she was gone and still I'm wondering why.
0: Well, very touching poem and remembrance of her friend. Thanks so much for sharing that, Carolyn.
11: Okay, thank you.
0: It was Carolyn Codd with Wondering. Um, next, let's go to um, Sharon Ferrante. Hey Sharon, how you doing?
5: Hi Tim, how
0: are you? Good. It's great to uh good. great to see you. Let me see. I still have Okay. I, I pushed some wrong button, but now you're there. <laughs> hey Carolyn, how you doing? Or Sharon, I mean Sharon.
5: Okay. I push something wrong all the time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I like pinned something by accident. I don't know what I did. But anyway, it's good to see you. Thanks for being here tonight. Um so I see
5: I hear you. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so so, what do you have that you'd like to share?
5: I have a prompt poem. Mm-hmm. My usual. And uh, tonight's show was just heart pounding. K- Katie, thank you for that interview. And all the poets tonight, all the poems were great. And so I have my silly little... I did Stephen King.
0: Oh, that's great! I love love, love see I mean, I was a huge Stephen King <laughs> fan back in the day.
5: <laughs> I mean, but I'm a short poem writer, mm-hmm. so I didn't go like I didn't go crazy. Okay. And so I'll just read my silly Stephen King
0: poem. I'll okay, go ahead.
5: If this were a Stephen King poem, it would take you to Maine. Have you actually speak with the accent while you? Th- Now, have you actually speak with the accent while you throw all your problems into a dark well, no longer needing eclipse glasses for a vision of the writer himself who goes on to lure you inside of a painting while a neighbor alerts the motion light Dragging bodies across the lawn. Then it would ask the desert aliens to dig. Dig. At the end of it all, you may feel a bit thinner. Don't worry, there's plenty of pie.
0: Oh, that was very fun. I think I've read every one of those books that you've referenced <laughs> in there, <laughs> as if this were a Stephen <laughs> King poem. <laughs>
5: Yeah, I'm a huge fan, and I love her. And I said, "Well, I'm not gonna go, I'm gonna go crazy with this." It was <laughs> fun. Thank you for that.
0: Compliment. Very fun. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that, Sharon. Thank you. Okay. Let's see who else. Yeah, we have Dick
3: Westheimer.
0: Hey, Dick. How are you doing tonight?
3: I like it. Oh, I'm doing great, Tim. It was. Uh, I had a question about your guest. Was it fortuitous uh-huh. that he was your guest? This week, or did you have her jump the line? No,
0: them- we just happened to be. It was a coincidence that you know it was a perfect uh, you know perfect topic to talk about this week when when that you know what's going on is going on, but no, she was uh on the um, you know we had her. I think we just had a poet respond poem Lisa about the Mona Lisa, and it was right then I was like, oh hey, I would mean to ask you to be on anyway. Why don't you come on? So that was it. Terrific. Yeah.
3: Um, well, I have a double duty poem. Um, I sent it to you on the prompt, but I also sent it poets respond. Um, and I was listening to your, um, uh, critique of the week and you reposted the prompt. I had forgotten about it. And it was right after the news broke about the overturning of Roe.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, I had just seen the epigraph online. A poet posted it, um, and that sort of gave me the energy for it. And I also was had already written about the weakening of Miranda rights on Wednesday and then the uh, weakening of the New York uh, gun control laws on mm-hmm. Thursday. I didn't even hear about the Miranda rights. What, what did they say about the Miranda rights? Uh, it's a slight weakening of it. It basically says that if you are not properly Mirandaized or mm-hmm. you read your rights, that you can't... Uh, uh, sue for civil redress. Oh wow. um to the police officer. So like if you were put through hell because you you know had an involuntary confession because you weren't read your rights, your case can still be thrown out, mm-hmm. but you can't sue the uh police officer.
0: That is what? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I,
3: well, it was a it, wow. It was the whole the whole week sort mm-hmm. of and yeah. this week we went up with another one that's mm-hmm. just a uh um, you know, theocratic nightmare. Yeah, um, yeah. So I don't want to live in a theocracy. That's just I'd, what
0: I prefer not
3: to as well. <laughs> didn't bargain for that. So, uh, anyway, so, um, I first wrote a poem that was called, if this were an Amy Cooney Barrett poem, but I expanded it to three justices and, uh, I think I might expand it to nine. Yeah. Point.
0: Honestly, I think, um, I I read this poem as a submission, and um, it was great. The only thing I think I I think you had to do at least the five, you know, that were doing the, uh, the what do you call it? Not the, con, the the, absolute dissent. What's the absolute dissent? The the majority decision. Majority decision. That's what. Yeah, at least yeah. those five. So it was kind of felt like a little incomplete with um, just the three. Well, it was know, my only downside for this. Well, I only poem. had a few hours, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. Well, I encourage you to expand it, but this is if yeah. this were a Samalito poem.
3: Yeah, so I think it'll expand till to, to nine. Yeah, nine would be
0: time. tough. That'd be a challenge, but yeah. Yeah,
3: uh, it'll it'll be a series. So my first prose poem. Um, if this were a Sam Alito poem and the um, epigraph from Sizzla Malosh, uh, learning to predict a fire with unerring precision, then burn down the house to fulfill the prediction. If this were a Sam Alito poem, would be written in tidy couplets, matched in beat and time. It would forget that words are born from grunts and battle cries, that swords decide which terms can be used and which are taboo, that the right to cleave your neighbor with a steel blade is her duty to bear Samuel's baby the one he so loves, the one he is willing to render in tercets and turds, to bang and clang the lines into refrigerator magnets, with the only words being life, and thoughts, and and, and prayers. If this were an Amy Coney Barrett poem, the first word in each line would be capitalized. The lines themselves would neatly rhyme, would chime with the rhythm of the sainted ones, in train with the Iams of a military parade, with goose stepping aunties, heads, and staffs held high, saluting to the crowd of commanders' wives in their hues of blue, and to the guardians of the right who know a thing or two about the Bump and mad grind about how we're all inclined to naughty deeds with the lights turned off, with a glory hole chemise cagoule between a woman and the beasts with their hairy parts, and the beat of steeple headed bigots stomping time on courthouse floorboards. If this were a Clarence Thomas poem, the meter would be trochee hammer, hammer, hammer double time. It would be a sestina cycling lines of the before times, when men were men and women were not, when guns were muskets and books were sewn with linen thread, when coke cans shed the hair of the dog that bit us all, when what was written in the age of powdered wings was wise, there would be, and there would be a crowning of a new king who'd reign over a land where men who held hands with men were melted down into guns anointed by boys who'd hold lead to the heads of women great with child and if this were my poem the verse would be blank the words mute the letters scattered across the page the white space would be smudged with ash the margins spattered with blood and pocked with powder burns. The verse would exercise its right to remain silent, cuffed to a chair, pregnant with despair. Yeah,
0: excellent poem, Dick, and a great poem to end the open mic on. Thanks for sharing that and for writing it. I'm looking forward to seeing the uh, the extended version because oh, it's yeah. uh, that's good stuff.
3: Got some work to do. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, Goodbye. yeah. Take care. Thanks.
0: Um, Let's see, I think that is everybody on the uh, Zoom. So I'm going to end the Zoom and um, go back. Let's see if there's anything I should read for this week's prompt. Um, um, Let me see. So there's a whole bunch of people who sent poems in who weren't here. Um... Not sure. Not sure if I should read these or not. Let's see. Well, I'll definitely read Carlton Johnson's though, because I know he would like to share, but can't join on Zoom. This is a "Empathy" by Carlton Johnson. Here's a "Empathy" by Carlton Johnson. I see you. You see me. There is night. And someday, when all you want is silence and a lone hand touches you, wanting nothing more but to have and to hold, to be here, appreciating each other, in a world where bombs fall, where children starve, where nature wilts, there's a hand reaching across time-space, saying, I see you, I care for you, please just sit Hold on to hope like spring Filling our overburdened senses With a semblance of humanity's own beginning That is Carlton Johnson's poem, Empathy um, Thanks for sharing that, Carlton He said, "Um, here's a generic submission Because I did not know what the prompt was for this week Okay, well there you go, this is Empathy um, By Carlton Johnson um, Oh, Bev Wendell Atherstone Did I, um, I think maybe Bev had to leave because I saw her there and then I didn't see her again. So sorry about that, Bev. I will read um, your poem, The Poem If I Were. Um, here's Bev's poem. And Sorry, Bev, maybe the connection dropped or something. Because I saw you there early on that I didn't see your, uh, you again. Here's uh, Bev's poem. Uh, stri- if I were a striped common tiger butterfly. If I were Blake, I'd set my sight on jing- jungles blazing with their might of poison caterpillars, chewing leaves, high in Borneo toxic fees, or... Toxic trees, I should say. Who taught you to harvest poison? How did you not die from toxin with incremental deadly bites? How did you learn this fight of life? Running the gauntlet of her days, at last she spins the chrysalis. She hangs as her body dissolves, perplexes science with her resolve, then cuts her way into light, her waxy wings dried into flight. She hangs resplendent in her robes of gossamer, in her new wardrobe, Bright her colors, others worn, jungle creatures of their harm. Scarlet interspersed with black, nature's warning signal stark. Her saffron plumage frightens prey, wanting them to stay away. In flight, a web she's trapped tightly, golden orb spider cuts her free. If I were Blake, I'd set my sight on jungles blazing with their might of poison caterpillars chewing leaves high in borneos toxic trees excellent i love that bev thanks for sharing that and sorry something happened on the zoom where i didn't couldn't find you um let's see let's see maybe i um hmm let's go to Let's read this poem. One more poem from uh, this Poet Respond. Um, This is a poem that Karen Marker sent. And I think she wants us to read it. Um, A Healing Ritual on Mother's Day After the Leak. Oops. There we go. A Healing Ritual on Mother's Day After the Leak for Lizelle Herrera. It starts with carrying stones, building a labyrinth with a moon in the middle. Take along water, fire a knife as you walk. The spiral circle to the center, then cut the cord from the life you cho- chose not to make. Your body partnered with earth, blood pouring out, your uterus opening into empty space for this act of forgiveness. Write the song of yourself with a feather. Make it a letter to what the ones who turned you in when you come came for help, locked you up with a sentence of murder. Called you monster, put the knife to the pain you never caused. Burn the letter. Cast the ashes into water. Keep your choices. Let them be blessings. Walk out strong into tomorrow. And then uh, the the note here says, um, On Thursday, April 7th, 2022, Texas sheriffs in the Rio Grande Valley arrested Lizelle Herrera and charged her with murder for allegedly self-inducing an abortion last January after staff at the hospital where she had gone for help reported her. Herrera was placed in a jail near the Texas-Mexico border, although there was no law yet in place that had authorized this action. She was later released. It is a chilling reality now. Any woman... Who has a miscarriage, stillbirths, or abortions can be jailed as a murderer. Yeah, excellent poem. Thanks for highlighting the story. It's something I hadn't heard of—a uh, healing ritual on Mother's Day after the leak—and uh, that was a poem by Karen Marker. Thanks for sharing that, Karen. Um, let's see how much time. Okay, we should probably wrap up the show if we can. I'll, I'll read some more if um, if we have time next week, because um, I have a whole long list of poems that people have sent. Um, who couldn't join at the exact time. But let's go instead to, um, let's look at the prompt for next week because, um, this was, again, we had Katie uh, pick a prompt and this was Katie's prompt. And she has a few example poems. Um, and maybe we'll read one of those poems as well, but she gives three examples um, of her prompt and her prompt is right here. Um, uh, take any abstraction like sorrow, envy, loneliness, desire, grief, homesickness, hope, forgiveness, and so on, though you almost always discourage love, and make that your title. Then the body of the poem is simply you describing that abstraction by using only concrete images and stories— um, three great examples are Anne Sexton's courage, Stephen Dunn's tenderness, and Jane Kenyon's happiness, which are linked below. Um, so this was this is the prompt that Katie gives to her students, um, trying to get them to write more concretely. And since we mentioned Stephen Dunn on the show, let's go to Stephen Dunn's um, tenderness. Um, and it's interesting because this poem for the for twenty years are um, the the. Um, the sample, you know, we have in the back of every issue of Rattle, there's those you know those unique contributor bios where people are supposed to write something about themselves or what, you know, inspires them to write poetry or what, you know, inspired the poem in particular. And the sample of the format, so everyone can see that it's in first person, is by my friend Eric Campbell. And um, his note is something like, um, you know, I was driving to work one day and heard um, Tenderness read on the radio by... um on the writer's almanac with garrison keeler and i was so moved i had to pull over that's why i write poetry i want to make someone else late for work um i'm paraphrasing slightly but that was eric's uh, eric's contributor note back in issue number 17 i think with his neil postman poem Um, and it was about this poem tenderness on the radio right here and for 20 years this has been the uh the the sample and so here it is from the writer's almanac i don't want to play it because i'm sure the uh, the audio is copyrighted, and, and I'm not sure if they would want me to um, play Garrison Keeler reading it, but I will read it myself. This is tenderness, and I haven't read this poem in a long time, so let's let's refresh my memory. But this is a, a sample for the prompt this week. Uh, Stephen Dun, tenderness. Back then, when so much was clear, and I hadn't learned young men learn from women what it feels like to feel just right. I was 23. She, thirty-four, two children, a husband in prison for breaking someone's head. Yelled at, slapped around, all she knew of tenderness was how much she wanted it. And all I knew were back seats and a night or two in a sleeping bag in the furtive dark. We worked in the same office, banter and loneliness leading to the shared secret that to help National Biscuit sell biscuits was wildly comic, "'which led to my body existing with hers "'like rain that's found its way underground to water, "'it naturally joins. "'I can't remember ever saying the exact word, tenderness, "'though she did. "'It's a word I see now. "'You must be older to use. "'You must have experienced the absence of it, "'often enough to know what silk and deep balm it is "'when when at last it comes. "'I think it was terror,' At first, it drove me to touch her so softly, then selfishness, the clear benefit of doing something that would come back to me twofold, and finally, sometime later, it became reflexive and motiveless in the high ignorance of love. Oh, abstractions are just abstract until they have an ache in them. I met a woman, never touched gently, and when it ended between us, I had new hands and new sorrow, Everything it meant to be a man changed, unheroic, floating. And that was Stephen Dunn's poem, Tenderness, which is the sample, um, one of three. I'll I'll include a link if you go to um, um, later in the show notes and on on the Rattlecast page. I'll include the link to that um, and the other two poems as well. Uh, The other two poems uh, that Katie included were uh, Courage um, by Anne Sexton and uh, Jane Kenyon's Happiness. So, uh, so the prompt again for this week or for next week is going to be to use an abstraction like sorrow, envy, loneliness, etc., and then, um, make that the title. And then the body of the poem is simply describing that abstraction by using only concrete images and stories. So that is the prompt for this week. Um, and here is the, uh, quick saiku for the week. Um, this was based on a, uh, little story here from, um, this is the, where is it? Um, Scola International I don't even know what this place is it's some university somewhere um, the octopus brain and the human brain share the same jumping genes so this was the article that I noticed this week and um, so there's this all there's all these I think in the human genome like 97% is, what is is we don't know what the use for of the genes is and for a long time it was called junk DNA um, but it turns out there are these elements that move around Um, they're called, uh, uh, what are they called? Um, what's the word? Trent, transpositons. I can't remember what they're called, but they're jumping genes that move around the genome. And the scientists have for a long time realized that there's something to do with memory, um, where those genes are used a lot in the hippocampus where memories are made. And what they did here is they looked at an octopus and they found that the same, um, genes, the same TET trans i can't remember the word um, but those genes are going on in an octopus um, which is maybe what's making an octopus so intelligent you know an octopus is, ne- is an invertebrate it doesn't have a brain like we do it's like a neural net um, and yet still it's very smart octopuses are and uh, somehow these genes that we used to call junk might be what's making us smart and what's making them smart which is a fascinating article and so here is my quick psycho about that octopi sifting through our junk DNA octopi sifting through our junk DNA and I also think there of course about how you know octopuses kind of gather garbage at the bottom of the ocean floor um and kind of make homes out of old bottles and things like that Uh, anyway that is the prompt for this week and was a great show thanks everybody for joining me sorry again to bev because I messed something up obviously um but uh, but it was great talking to Katie and sharing her amazing poems. At the very beginning, the Poet Respond poems were wonderful, too. Um, next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be Alexis Sears, and that's a special time because next Monday is uh, Independence Day in the United States. So we're going to shift it back one day, Sunday, July 3rd. At the regular time, though, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we're going to talk to Alexis Sears, another poet who was on, very um, really recently, on Poet Respond. And uh, I heard that she won the uh, Donald Justice Poetry Prize for this book Out of Order which just came out in the spring and so I asked her if she'd join us because I love the Donald Justice Poetry Prize and, um, and uh, Quincy Lear was the judge uh, Quincy Lear is one of the most interesting poets around um, and we always love formal poetry too so it's a good look at some of that she had that great gazelle, um heartbreak guzzle um, back on Poetry Spine a couple weeks ago, um, that was Alexis Sears. Uh, that's going to be episode number one fifty of the Rattlecast, with the book Out of Order. And then the prompt once again is to, is Katie's prompt to use uh, use a uh, abstraction and write a poem in concrete stories and images describing that abstraction. So hope you enjoyed that prompt. Hope you have a great week. In the meantime, I'll see you for critique of the week on Friday. Um, and take care and talk to you soon. Bye.